Music Legends podcast is all about giving props to our music legends now while they're alive. And my guest today is not only composing and developing this music, all sorts of music in fact, he's enabling others to play it, but he's also aligning that music to tell the story of who we are as black people. Sounds uh, pretty familiar, doesn't it, to my uh, telling it as it is in word and song mantra? that I uh, insist is my ethos. This is the personal history of composer Gary Washington and his ancestors, and it's a celebration of the wider African diaspora during this time, who fought and resisted enslavement at every step and until the very end. And he's here to tell us more. Gary Washington, AKA the Urban Cellist, Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, RJ. It's a pleasure to be here. I've known about your show for, I could say, years now, and I've always wanted to be on it. So, yeah. I've known about you for a few years now. I was mentioning uh, in the show a few weeks ago with uh, Toby Rathbone, who is the, uh, you know, he is the... uh, a big program worker for the um, Manchester Jazz Festival. And we were actually talking about uh, you and the fact that I've seen your journey. I've seen the transition. This is year three. Um, and each year it's been a pleasure, I have to say. And each year there has been a development. But before we get stuck into all of that, Just take me back, because obviously I can hear your accent. I've talked about New Orleans. So um, what brought you to Manchester in the first place? Um, Well, first, I guess, like, first, um, there's two things. Like, um, there was this woman I was dating, and it was also music. So those two together, uh, I did a tour in the UK in 2019 and I just, I dug it and I just saw certain opportunities that I could like explore here mute on a musical level. So okay. yeah. Well, there's two good reasons, love and music. I couldn't think of two better reasons actually, but uh, I'm going to take you back even further, Gary, because as I say, I can hear that accent. So tell me, what was it that actually got you into music in the first place? My father, my dad, he uh, he played the bass guitar and the tuba in high school. So he would always talk about music. He was a lover of music. And he basically, he would talk about it with such passion, it just, put it in me or maybe I just naturally had the passion and we just sort of connected with through it but yeah we both always love music when so, you say he played do you mean he played for himself or he played professionally uh, he didn't play professionally he um my uncles have a band so yeah they still have it my father's deceased now but he like started that band with my uncles and that band still gets up today still from all those years and I would hear about stories of them playing like you know, my uncle played the piano, uncle played drums and guitars and bass and 
I would always hear my dad talk about my uncles. So I always like, I always like looked up to my uncles because they were, yeah, they were in like New Jersey. And at the time I was in South Carolina, so I didn't really get to see them very often, but I would just hear about them. Okay. So, yeah. Well, those stories are always the strongest stories. And when they're told with love and passion, and it's something that your dad is into at the same time, I suppose that makes it even more real. But when did you think to yourself, do you know what? There's something in this for me. Seriously. I'm not talking about just, just loving it and having a chat with your dad. I'm talking about Gary Washington being able to say something through yeah. the medium of music. Well, it was three stages for me with music. It was like at first when I was when I first picked up the instrument, I knew that I was very serious. Like I just knew it. You couldn't I just knew it. And then there was the time when I got jumped and then it was when I um entered in New Orleans. So those are three separate occasions. So obviously I picked the instrument up. I was like, yes, this is it. I don't need to know anything else. Like and then when I got jumped, I was hanging out in the streets, like basically I had these friends and we had these little like I guess you would call it like uh just groups of people that cling to each other i wouldn't call it a gang but i would just say like you know just certain cliques you know and certain things and this one guy was fighting this one guy and he was getting jumped i jumped in and i turned the tide of the fight i was always a good fighter because i have a big brother and then i have big big cousins so i was always like i was good at fighting you know strong so but the guy was like yeah man we're gonna jump you man my cousin's gonna come from new york and I'm like, yo, you know, well, you can, but I have my friends as well. So it's like, you know. But then his friends came, and I got jumped, and it was really bad. But none of my friends came to, like, support me. And that was really hurtful. And then I was really beat up. And, yeah, long story short. Did, did, sorry, forgive me, Gary. I mean, it's easy to say, not easy to say. Obviously, it's a traumatic story. But when you say none of your friends came to support you, did your friends know that you needed support? Did they know that this was going to happen? Was it like, you're making it sound like West Side Story even. Well, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love that music. Um, I, think, I think it's more of... I think it was more of they knew about it, but I guess it just wasn't that big of a deal to them like, as it was for me. Okay. Because, you know, as a kid, you know, I had my father and my mother in my life, but that was definitely, um, that was complicated. But, you know, when you form these social groups as a kid, even as an adult, but it's particularly as a kid, it's like, it's very traumatic when like, you think people are your friends and all of a sudden like, it turns out that maybe they don't see certain things the way you see it and they're not, they can't support you in a way that you feel that you want them to, you know, it's because you're looking for that like camaraderie as a kid, you know, you're looking, you don't want to be left out. You don't want to sit at the lunch table by yourself as a kid because it's different as an adult. I mean, yeah, it might be traumatic as an adult in a way, but as a kid, it's different, you know? And 
I think after that time period, that's when I was like, you know what, like, I'm going to pour myself into my craft. Um, and then I went through a whole lot of other stuff in my childhood that sort of cemented that, like, like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, this is, this is like, this is like my, not only is what I want to do with my career, this is like my therapy, this is my safe space, this is where I can express myself and be vulnerable and put my emotions into this. And that's when it's that started to really, I mean, it happened before. I used to write poems and I said, but after that happened, I really, I would just pry. I remember when I didn't have an instrument, you know, before I had my own cello, I used to airplay. I used to just like put like a trash can here, put like a broom on it and just put a pencil in my hand and just airplay, you know, just, I just wanted to like keep my chops up, you know? And then I remember when I got my first cello, I used to cut grass and I used to just, I used to just knock on doors, cut grass. Hey, do you want your grass cut? Save the money. And then this one teacher, Mr. Mitchell, he was like, Mr. Washington, sir, what is that? I said, this is a cello. He said, I'm going to help you buy one. And he drove, like he drove like at least a mile and a half, even two miles came to my house, put like $250 in my hand. How old and are you then? How old are we now, Gary? Even know, man. I was 14, 15. So it's almost like you've had these, you've had teachers, and it's like you've had these little uh, guardian angels, if you like, dipping in and out of your life, supporting you. You know, I say in all of these things, you know, it's one thing having ability, it's one thing having capability, but you absolutely need somebody on your side. You need somebody on your side to Definitely. allow you access in. And it sounds to me that even by the age of 14, you've talked about your young, your young teachers at school, and you're now talking about this gentleman who's actually enabled you to get your first instrument, and you are aged 14. So, I was young. Not yeah, only is that wonderful, but they must be seeing something in you too, Gary. Yeah, like I said, like I was very serious. Like I just knew it from the very beginning. It wasn't like, you know, how some kids. It's like, oh well, let me just see if this kid is into it. Let me just, let me just see. No, it was like, no, this is it. Like I was, no questions asked. I was set. Like I knew what I wanted to do from really young. Even you know what. Even when I was five, I remember, even before all of that, my, my dad asked me, he said, Junior, what instrument do you want to play? And I said, the drums. And he said, okay, I'm going to get you a drum set. He never got the drum set. But even from when I was five, I knew that I wanted to play music, you know, from when dad asked me that question. But if you would have gotten that drum set, I think my life would have taken a different trajectory. I'm happy he didn't because... <laughs> Okay, so we talked about the trauma. That was you. That was your second reason. Because what was the third reason? What was the the the, the third thing? So New Orleans um, was when I was really, I really like explored my bass career at that time, and I remember when I I'm there. I was like, I want to play. I want to be a session musician. And I remember sitting in with people, and I think. That was my first real experience as a professional musician. And it basically taught me, like, 
it's like, okay, this is what it takes. You know what I mean? You have to like do this. You have to do that. You have to dress like this. You have to hang out. You have to, you know, like you're not a child anymore. So like, well, you're kind of a kid, but yeah. But I transitioned from that was New Orleans was like my like, if if New Orleans was like my transition into the adulthood, if you will, and into like being really doing this like as a career, what does it actually take? Yeah, they were just very supportive, you know, but for me, I was just learning a lot, you know, like, what does it mean to like, play to like, be able to like, as a bass player, support everybody and put down that foundation and like learning that and learning how to like communicate and it was just like training wheels are coming off and it's like yeah it was nice okay okay so how do we then move from you there you're in new orleans you start i know getting proper paid gigs then don't you you start moving around and doing more paid work and then i think To me, it seems like you suddenly find yourself in Europe. So how what was that journey? Well, in New Orleans, I had a bunch of mentors and they taught me a lot. And like in university, um, like I would get like, I would hang out with certain teachers and we would just look at scores of like different composers and we would, they would introduce me to like different composers and I would look at, the, you know, just studying different scores and understanding like, oh, okay, this is what this is. Like, oh, you know, just really like learning, putting things together. So I had all these different influences. So in New Orleans, I played all different types of music, you know, and then from the orchestral stuff to hip hop to straight ahead to traditional stuff. And I started um, doing these shows where like I would, so I start. I was. Oh, I was doing electronic music. I'm gonna make this really quick. Doing electronic music that didn't go so well. So as a response to like, because I put so much energy into this like electronic avant-garde hip hop kind of stuff. I felt that. I don't know. I felt that I was really hurt that I wasn't really accepted within like a certain scenes that I wanted to be accepted in. So. And I saw other people, I felt like they just had an easier time being accepted. And I was I was really bitter, actually, and I was really hurt. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to write this cello suite. This is my first time, like, actually composing something in the sense of, like, because like, I did a lot of electronic stuff, beats and stuff, you know. But I composed this piece. I never wrote it out, but it was called the African-American Cello Suite. And I had all these glorious plans of recording it, and <laughs> but I never did. But I took, we'll get back to that. But then what happened was this guy, B. Mike, I was like, yo, I want to play this suite at your like um, studio. And he was like, uh, yeah, because it, was, it wasn't really, it was only just like, he wasn't really into it, to be honest. But he was like, man, you got to do something for the culture. He said, you have to combine. He said, I have this art gallery. He's a muralist, really brilliant. And he said, I'm not on like Royal Street or Charter Street or whatever. But he was like, I'm like kind of off to the side, you know, but I've created my own thing. I can attract a 60-year-old professor at something 
and a 19-year-old upstart rapper, and I can have them all in the same place because I have the complexity of, like, I'm doing this, but I'm also doing that, and it just works together. He said, you have to do that with your music. And that, and he, and, and then that really stuck with me. I was like, mm, that's very interesting. So what was his job? What did you say he was at? B Mike is a mirrorless. Like he's quite famous now. He um like he did there's a book that Will Smith just wrote. He did the cover for it. Okay. He, he does art. He he's really brilliant. B Mike, um, Brandon Oldham's. Yeah. And he um he painted this like projects and like he had like Erica Badu come and DJ. He he's just like he's just like he's 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 like really established in the art community. But he taught me a lot of game back in the G, you know what I'm saying? Like he really like so after that, I really started taking that beatboxing, playing the cello very seriously. Cause he told me, he said, you need to like really do that. So then I um organized this show to where I had I was solo cello. I had like dancers, poets, rappers, bounce up, like everybody. And I'm just playing my cello with my little chaos pads. And then I did I did that show, and then I did another show. Then I had a string trio, same concept with different artists. And then, so who's paying for all of this? Are you is is is, is it are you getting the money because you're charging for the tickets? Well, or is somebody so, supporting yeah, you? Yeah, tickets. Yeah. tickets. I was I was selling it was ticketed events. This was my first. I didn't really know all these terms back then, but this was my first stab at being a producer. Okay. Like, this was like a new thing. I didn't realize at the time, but those skills that I was developing would help me later in life. So all of a sudden, right before COVID, 2018-19, I got this house. It was like a house house. Like It wasn't a flat because I lived in flats the whole time. But I had like two bedrooms. It was a really nice place to where you could do shows there. So I started producing shows. Like I started developing my producing skills. Like I would do jam sessions every week. I would do big shows. I had tons of shows there. People and this started to become like a meeting place for everyone. Where is this? Where are we? New Orleans. Okay. So this was like a meeting place and like I would bring string quartets in and like Jimbe, I would just combine all different types of like arts together, you know, and kind of put a different spin on different stuff. And it was like an avant-garde, but also like, I, I basically, I was able to attract all these different types of people from drug dealers to professors to like, and all in between. It was, it, it, it was basically like my dream coming true. So basically when I got to England, like, I didn't realize, like, all those things I was doing, those shows, how much it would help me. But then realizing, like, okay, like, that was, like, the beginning of, of another. It was like I was birthing another thing, on, you know. And now, hindsight, I look back say, oh, wow. I see how it's, like, all connected. Yes. There may be something else I'm, like, developing. So coming here to England, I immediately got here. So 2019, I started writing a story of a people called Black. And, but then in between then, George Floyd was murdered. And then, then the, you heard a few movements from um, Black Transcendental Suite. Yes. I, I composed that 
really quick actually. But the thing was, was like, it's crazy. Like prior to that, I wasn't really writing. I mean, I wrote the African-American cello suite, but I don't know, I came to England and then I started writing, recorded that. And then, so before I came to England, my goals were to, <clears throat> I was very clear. I said, I want to get the global talent visa and I want to get Black Transcendental Suite recorded and get funding to produce a story of a people called Black. And all those things came to pass and the latter is in the works, which is, so yeah, that's kind of. It is, it is absolutely incredible. Um, and the story is so huge. What I'm going to try and do is 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 bring it into the focus of this event that you're actually putting on yeah. in Manchester on the 17th of June. And if we start just with the title, A Story of a People Called Black, yeah. I know what it means. What do you think it means? Well... To different people, I think it could mean a lot of different things because some people, like, I'm not black. I'm this or I'm that. It's like a lot of people, pan-Africanists. I, I, I did define myself as a pan-Africanist. It's like we're Africans, you know what I mean? Um, but it's one of those titles that you can't, really, you can't really be mad at it because it's saying a story of a people called black. So it's not like I'm saying I'm black. Do I identify as being, I identify personally as being Black American, culturally, you know, that's just what it is. But, you know, but for people who identify as being Black, it's like, it's like, yeah, I'm Black. You know what I'm saying? So it's one of those titles that you can't really argue with it. <laughs> no, 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 you can't argue with it. I just wondered if there was um, a reason why yeah, you used it. It, it started because, so my ancestors were shipped across the Atlantic. So my first impression of it was like, this is intended for Jamaicans, Caribbean, uh, well, Caribbean people, you know, Cubans, Black people, you know, like South Americans, all those cats who were shipped across the Atlantic. It's like, because in a sense, I'm telling my story, but it's a story of people called Black, which is really all of our stories. But then I really thought like, you know, Africans, they, like, when you look at the like, link between Africans and like, let's say, uh, black people in South America, or man, we, we, we are like this, you know what I'm saying? But we're like, they're over here and we're over here, but we're like the same people, you know, we, we do a lot of the same, things and it's like that spirit is within all of us and we it, it, i mean yeah they beat us they did all this tried to destroy our culture but man like that spirit it just transformed and you know man like it's it's, it's still so we're the same people you know we're, we're all we're the same people how did you decide how you were going to tell this story well it started the only way I can answer this is to say how it started. It started by being in Manchester and realizing that they call Manchester Cottonopolis. And so they're realizing that Manchester celebrates Cottonopolis. 
and excuse me, and understanding that, you know, if I'm from the south of the United States, my ancestors picked cotton. I have my lineage going back to the 1800s. I know those ancestors on my father's side, and and then so being in Manchester, being a bit upset over kind of how Manchester is glorifying the past. Well, not all of Manchester, but parts of Manchester. You know, they got this place in town called Cottonopolis and the bumblebees. It's just like what? Manchester was a beehive, you know, all the workers working for, you know, the queen bee, you know. And it's just it just kind of it kind of rubbed me the wrong way, to be honest. Felt a bit uncomfortable because, you know, my ancestors picked that cotton that came here. Have you seen all of the uh, stuff? I'm sure you must have done over the last month or so. All of the stuff about Manchester and Cottonopolis, and the the Guardian has been running um, a really informative series. Have you seen it, Gary? If you haven't, I will send you the link because you will love it. It basically talks about Manchester's part in this and the part that they should play and do play, and what needs to be done. Yeah, they got Abraham Lincoln in the city center. I, I've been to that statue, and it's just kind of like, you know, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Why don't you – that was a gift from the states. I forgot what state and what person, but I just think the city could do better at, like, um, like actually, like, really, like, let's tell the story right, you know, like what actually happened and not just – but at the same time, you know, the, the the mill workers, they did sacrifice at a certain point for, you know, with the cotton famine. Yes, they did. They did. So I'm appreciating that as well. So it started with that, you know, with that whole concept. And then I got deeper into my family's lineage, you know, realizing, you know, one of my ancestors, um, uh, they um so Alec and Betsy were born like in the early eighteen hundreds, like eighteen oh one, something like that. And then they purchased after being enslaved, they purchased land, which is like fifty, forty acres, something like that. They didn't do the sharecropping thing. And it's quite in incredible, like for African Americans to own property after being enslaved, like there's a lot of African-Americans had to share crop, you know, which <clears throat> isn't really a great situation. So that's something that I really value. But then, you know, after they had a kid called Primus, Primus and a woman called Jane. And there's a story in the family, this isn't written down or documented that, but Primus was used to impregnate women in other plantations. He was a tall, handsome black man and um but Primus eventually left Jane and um had twelve more kids with like another lady twenty miles down the road, twenty, thirty down the road. And I'm just pulling up the list of movements. But then so you know, I have a lot of my history documented. So I was like, you know what? This is my story. You know what I'm saying? This is and I take pride in my story. You know, like my grand my so my great-grandmother's grandmother, basically, is an easy way to sort of understand that. My great, so my grandmother's grandmother, called Jane, who was married to Primus, 
that Primus left. Um, <clears throat> after Primus left, Jane, on her own, single black woman, and unable to read, unable to write, purchased like 30, 30 acres on her own, you know? There's a movement dedicated to her and black women at large. So, and then after that, after I started to like, cons that started, and okay, and so basically, I'm working with this, um, co-producing a show with this woman called Isabella Cox, and she's a brilliant producer. Um, so she's given me a lot of perspective. She's from Manchester. She's just a really brilliant woman. And so in terms of this whole narrative, you know, I've been working with her in terms of she's been doing a lot of help with the creative production of just like coming up with how this can flow, you know, and so it's been like, but the music, um, and just like writing music and certain stuff I've, I've had, and it just sort of made sense. Like I just heard it like, wow, that my spirit has been like writing this from this place and I didn't realize it. Like uh premise was, yeah, you know, you could be doing stuff. You could be writing music and you could feel it intuitively, but not know what it's about until it tells you what it's about, you know? So Africa is the first movement rhythm section. Basically, we're from Africa, but it starts with just drums, but then the harpist comes in in the rhythm section. And I'll, and it, it's a feeling of, wow, it's like a distant memory almost for us. Distant, you know? Rebellion is next. It's like cats did rebel. There were tons of rebellions, you know? People ain't just going to be enslaved and just take it. People going to fight, you know? Then war, that's the fight. Primus, dedicated to my grandmother's grandfather, basically, that's basically talks about home. Pride talks about being proud of who we are. Ancestral prayer is the prayer that the ancestors prayed for their future generations. We are those prayers. Cottonopolis is the complexness of Manchester. And, yeah. And also about my ancestors as well. Interlude to Black Swan is basically featuring a poet. Um, um, and then, yeah, well, we'll talk about the featured artists. Uh, and then Black Swan is dedicated to Black women. Okay, Black Swan is a complex movement. Very complex. Because remember, uh, let's go back. Remember I told you we we're going to get back to uh, the African-American suite? Well, I wrote Black Swan seven years ago it's so interesting um that it's your history and yet that history is bearing resonance with so many people whether we know our full history or not by the mere fact of either we're black or we're in manchester or our forebears have suffered or something of a similar nature you know you do have the advantage of knowing who you are. Identity is such a huge part of who and what we are as a people. And, you know, you also mentioned George Floyd. And I just wonder, you know, this telling of the story of slavery and certainly through jazz, it's not new. Max Roach did it. Dizzy Gillespie did it. Um, Duke Ellington has done it. Charles Minger, you know, they, 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 they've all, you know, had, had, had some 
in inverted commas, if I say attempt, it sounds disrespectful because it's not an attempt. They're, they're fantastic sweets. All trying, all trying to share this story of, of, of who and what we are as a people. But the story of who and what we are as a people is the same story, Gary. It is a story of a subjugated people, a people who are made to feel less than or a people who are made to feel like other by the nature of the colour of their skin. So that's kind of the same story. And I think in all of this, and you mentioned George Floyd as well. And I think in all of this, this is the 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 there's you know the thing that kind of saddens me, if you like, in that throughout our journey, it is that same story. And it's a story where we're crying. This is why our music, I believe, this is why our music, our art, our style, everything is is so special because it's emanating from the heart and from the soul and deep from who and what we are and who and what our forebears were and are. That's, a, that's really beautiful. I feel so, is that it? Is that is that kind of it with you? Are you just saying, do you know what? I know, and this is this is how this translates to me musically, visually, artistically. Right. Definitely. Definitely, all of that. You know. Uh, it's um. Yeah, it's a story, but it's 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 it's. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of it's a, it's 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 a it's a big um situation to be honest in terms of like the scope of it like it covers a lot of ground if you know what I mean talks about loss and love and interlude to Black Swan and Black Swan is dedicated to Black women but specifically my grandmother's grandmother she on her own was purchased like 38 or 20 acres of land, something like that, in the early um, 1900s. Which is absolutely extraordinary. Can I come back to Primus and something that I think is really important, actually, Gary? Um, you talked about him and the connection, and obviously, I know that. I don't know however many levels removed, but... but My grandmother's grandfather. Your grandmother's grandfather, okay. So I don't know what that makes him to you. But, great, 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 great. I don't know. <laughs> That's the best, easiest but, way. Yeah. But the interesting thing, there's him, and then there's also your grandmother. Both of them did something that was extraordinary at that time. They were, in inverted commas, business people. Now, I don't mean business people as such, but you say, now, Primus's story is sad. Uh, and th this is what I really want to talk to you about, uh, because you said that he went off to search work elsewhere. His job was impregnating women. He was, you said, married. What happens? This whole thing and this, this, this kind of the whole psyche around um, black men and baby mothers and the way that 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 you know some um, men carry on with this practice these days is because in the days of slavery, they weren't actually allowed to get married. And 
in the days of slavery, that is kind of what they did. And Primus, I know you say he was very tall and very good looking and, you know, and so basically... And he had the features that they had... He had the features that they wanted to breed, basically. But, but he was used to breed more slaves, basically, wasn't he? That's Primus's job. That's the story that has been passed down. It's not written down anywhere, but that's what. That's what. Um, that's what. That's what my. That's what my great aunt told me. Do you think that that does have something to do with the behavior, in inverted commas, of some? young black men and indeed kind of the perception that you know you got black men going around breeding up women all over the place well black men have are sexualized in in a in a very you know like you know there's a lot of stereotypes about black men you know some some of us embrace those stereotypes some of us might not embrace those stereotypes but they are there and i think that we are seen to be aggressive and like, you know, all of these, you know, maybe not well educated, maybe, you know, maybe ignorant. We may seem to be like have a having a bunch of kids with a bunch of different women. And I think that in some cases it's true, in some cases it's not. Like I don't have any children, you know. But, you know, I think that, you know, I, children are beautiful, by the way. I'm not saying children are bad. But I just think that it's crazy, like, you know, this is whole thing. Um, yeah, culturally, what is, like, left with us now, like, culturally, like, how did this culture, how did these stereotypes come to be in existence? Um, obviously, it's to favor somebody, you know what I mean? These stereotypes work for somebody, you know? Yes. Yeah. It's like... I mean, I don't. I can't really answer that question. You know, I can just talk about it and make observations. I'm not a scientist or a social whatever, you know. But there, that is a very interesting thing that you just brought up. Actually, very interesting point. Okay, and then on to your wow great grandmother being a businesswoman, and in that time being able to somehow buy her own land again it's extraordinary yeah she couldn't read she couldn't write um she and you know for a black woman this is like this isn't like the 1960s this isn't the night this is 19 this is before 1910 you know this is strong she's in the american south this is during a time where for a black person to a black family let alone a black woman to own anything like um yeah it's it's you have to put it into that context, you know. It was well before Martin Luther King was even thought of, you know what I mean? Marcus Garvey, yeah, but, you know, he was in New York, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, Marcus Garvey was not in the South, like, talking about it, you know what I'm saying? So it's different. I mean, yeah, he toured, but, yeah, I mean, Black people were seen as, you know, no one was saying Black was beautiful back then, you know? Black was ugly. Black woman was ugly. You know what I'm saying? They, they didn't have black baby dolls. You know what I'm saying? Like, so for this, for my grandmother's grandma to, yeah, I can, yeah, talking to you really helps me appreciate it even more. But, you know, it's crazy. 
Black Swan is one of those movements that I wrote a long time ago. And, you know, it was a pure movement. This movement is very, 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 very bold, very regal, and very proud, and very young. It's very noble. That's the word. It's very noble. But for a long time, I was like, am I just depicting Black women as bold and noble? How about soft? Like, and for, I would say, years, I would... I didn't really realize. I said, nah, I didn't I didn't put that in the movement. Like musically, I didn't express that emotion. Until quite recently, I've been like sort of looking at the score and realizing it starts like this, goes here, and it ends very well. But there's this middle part that if you're not paying attention, you may even miss it. You might not even realize it because things that come before it. But it goes into this very tender, very emotional, very soft part. So it's almost like I have it covered up to where like it starts regal and bold and yada, yeah, and then it ends. But and it's like covered up. You don't see it immediately. You have to you have to be within the movement to like experience that side of it. And I said, that's very, I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that's very interesting because black people at large, you know, aggressive, loud, you know, you know, they, they, they stereotype us. And I'm not saying that we are, I'm saying that that's the stereotype. But in this music, it's bold, it's loud, it's commanding. But then when you listen to it, 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 it sneaks up on you. Do you know something? I think you have absolutely got the complexity, if you like, of you know, the reality of the black British experience there in a nutshell. You know, you talk about when you were talking about Primus and uh, you, you used, you know, about talking and aggressive and angry. That is actually something that is leveled more towards women, Gary, than it is towards men. Where where I start to come into this thing is it's almost like for us to have an opinion is almost an affrontery. Now, bear in mind, you've mentioned George Floyd. So we know what happened with George Floyd and the whole world came together. And with one voice, we all said enough is enough. And there was all sorts of promises made um, about how they're going to redress (coughs) uh, EDI because it was glaringly obvious um what was going on when you started to look through you know and it's it's not one aspect of life it's all aspects of black life in britain today we know that we fare we know that we fare worse so george floyd happened it was horrendous absolutely horrendous to to witness the murder um of you know somebody on television like that nine minutes 46 seconds murdered like 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 you would kill an animal That's why it was all so significant. And there's been all sorts of promises made, as you know, um, and all sorts of schemes are abounding about trying to basically give black people a chance to, I would say in inverted commas, a chance to, you know, they call it like equality of opportunity, just to give them a chance to compete, to allow us in. So there's lots of different ways to do that. But, but, you know, we're not there yet, Gary. And, you know, the thing about George Floyd was it was supposed to be the end of complicit silence. And 
we know that when you speak out, and I know because obviously it's something that, that I, I, you know, I think that has happened with me, is you speak out and you are perceived as being a certain person or an activist or this, that and the other. Now, is it a good thing or a bad thing to be, be perceived that way? I don't know. But there are consequences. There are actually consequences for speaking out. And so, therefore, you only get certain people speaking out. And art, art is a medium that actually allows you to ask those questions. It allows you to ask those questions why and how. Um, in I'm not going to say an approachable way, but in a way that can tap into somebody's psyche in a different way. And, and I know it's an awful long lead into this question, Gary, but are you finding that the serious nature, if you like, of what it is that you're actually talking about in these different six movements are, are, are transmitted because of the media and, and better than if, say, for example, you were just to read it in a book, Black People Suffered or Mary Suffered or Prima Suffered or and did Good? I don't think of it as like, yeah, suffering is included, but Anything that is great as complexity, it's a celebration. It's beautiful. When I think of a story people call Black the Production, I get really happy. I don't get like, oh man, a story people call Black, man, this is heavy. I, it's not heavy for me. I mean, maybe for other people it might be heavy, but for me, it's very light because it's like, a, it's, it's, because think about it. So many people have died maybe they haven't been able to tell their story. This is an opportunity to celebrate unity amongst all of us. Have you written all of this? Have you written all the orchestral pieces as well? Right. It took me, what? At the end of 2019, so December at the end, basically from 2020 to basically, I just printed this out this just got printed, so obviously. Wow. So, yeah, I've been working on it for, it's been years. It's been years, definitely it's been years. How'd you feel? To be honest, to see the score look at me, and to look at like, I never really appreciated the work it took, I never really even understood it because it's something I love and it's something that you don't really think of it as like, when you love something, it's like, it's not even a thing. But to be honest, right, to pick this score up and to look at it as a piece like this is quite daunting. It's like, how in the heck did I do this? You don't really realize it when you're doing it, but reflecting on it like this is very like, very interesting. Are you going to be conducting on the night? Oh, no, no. So are you going to be playing? There's a conductor called Sean Matthews. Okay, about what I'm going to be doing, I haven't really shared this with many people, but, oh, man, this is my first time publicly saying this, but the initial concept for this music, it was going to be a cello concerto. But... I kind of gotten out of that idea because I don't really want, I just didn't want it to 
marketed as like a cello concerto. I didn't want to use that like that definition. I didn't. Wa I wanted it to be ambiguous. I wanted it to be like like I didn't want to put myself in that like highlighted position of like oh I'm playing a solo cello part. I wanted it to be like okay this is a story of people called black. And you come, and it's featuring Woody Green, Yemi Balatiba. Woody's um, MC, is rapping, and then uh, and writing, and then Yemi is singing and writing lyrics, lyricist as well. And Deborah is doing poems, but Deborah Black. But um, yeah, there's the big four movements are Primus, Cottonopolis, Black Swan, and Unity. Those I call them the big four. That is the meat and potatoes of a story people call black. The other movements are important, obviously, but they are like the big movements. You know what I mean? They're like, yeah, those are the big movements. And I'm playing solo cello. I'm playing solo cello in those four movements. Now, I am playing in other movements as well, but there are some movements I just don't play in, like Pride, I don't play in. Spirit, I do play in. Outro, I don't play in. You know, there are a few movements I don't play. So some people may think of it as a cello concerto, but it's not really a cello concerto in a traditional sense. And is that is that part of the whole thing for you to be part of the vibe, for you to be the part of the musicians who is making that music? Because basically you are making that that is you're kind of making history. The performance is kind of making history in itself, isn't it? Well, I guess we'll see when we'll see what time says, you know, you know. And is this I, the first? Are this going to be the first performance on uh, on world, Saturday? World premiere, and it's interesting. It's at the Naya because I heard the Naya was like the biggest Afro Caribbean place in Europe back in the day. It was the first. Um, yes, it was the first place um, that was. It was described as a black-led arts organization and I was involved with it back in the day then so I know that near means purpose and it's near not nigher and uh, yeah uh, but it's now obviously near Moss and being being taken over by by a group of really dedicated and committed people um, and once again you know with the view to not you know, it being about them telling us what art is about, but about them facilitating and helping artists like you to put on events and tell your story. So, yeah, it's kind of continuing, uh, continuing the cycle. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. I knew that I wanted this to be, I mean, yeah, there's plenty of venues in, in Manchester. But first of all, I wanted this to be in Manchester, the premiere to be in Manchester, personally. In my mind, I couldn't see it any other way. We can go anywhere after this. We got to start in Manchester. And then within Manchester, I wanted it to be in Hume. Yes, definitely. Because I just feel like it's like, it just feels right. It just feels, I couldn't. I remember I would go into the space, Naya, Nia, and yeah. I would just walk on the stage and envision, like, like, the, the 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 players all lined up and <clears throat> you know and I was just like imagine it and it's just like whoa like I've I I've envisioned this for like some years now. Well, the whole thing near means it's a Swahili word that means purpose, um, and your purpose is to come and tell 
your story of a people called black. But it's our story. I was just going to say, obviously, but what it does is it's it's our story. And it's not just our story, me as a black person. It's our story of a people of the world. Because I think this is something else that people have got to dig. When we start talking about black issues, black issues aren't just black issues. It's for, right. just for black people. We're, we're, we're people of the world. And right. globalization now. Uh, makes that even more so apparent. So you know we're not we're not this B A M E or any of this other thing. We're 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 a people of the world, and this 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 stuff really matters. Something that I always say I'm upset about is the fact that black people don't dig jazz, and I ask people why. Have you got any thoughts as to why we don't see black people out there in the masses supporting the beautiful art form of jazz? Jazzy hip hop. I don't play. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know. I don't play jazz, so I don't have anything to do with that. Okay, so when you go out and you're playing to your audiences, what's the what's the demographic makeup of your audience then? Yeah, that's one thing we're really um, working on to get as many black people as possible to come to this event because I do understand that it could be very whitewashed like, in terms of the audience. And I obviously want our colleagues and friends to come, but I definitely I'm making that like I'm going tomorrow to this like uh, Black Caribbean thing tomorrow and just meet with some some elderly ladies, give some tickets away and try my best. We're, we're really putting the effort in. Yes. And, and yeah, so hopefully and I went to um, different events, African Liberation Day, yes. and, like Longside and just, just trying to spread the word. the word. You know, when you say whitewash, though, Gary, you know, I think that we should both be clear here. Um, you know, we're grateful for whatever audience is out there. Definitely. But the reality, the reality is, and I will talk about the gigs that I'm into, so music of black origin, you're talking about 90, 90, 90% white audience, really. Um, yeah. And it, it's been that way, if not, and and for jazz gigs, I'd say probably more like ninety eight percent audience. It's been that way for always for thirty odd years, Gary. When we say jazz, we should be clear what we're talking about. So when you say jazz, so I'm when, talking about any music. When I say when I, I I say music of a jazzy vibe, so I'm taking in neo soul, new soul, R and B, blues. So that word jazz, hip hop, jazz, hip hop, the lots. That word isn't a word that that our ancestors ever really agreed with. Mm -hmm. It's quite a, I use it sometimes to like, just so I don't have to explain, but I call my music personally, I call it spirit music. Yeah. Um, because the spirit that is in all of us connects us. Jazz is, uh, that is not our music. That is like a gentrified version of what we have created. So, like Louis Armstrong came and people took pieces of what he has done and called it jazz. But I don't make jazz. I mean, my music is can't be defined by, like, you can't really, I mean, I guess within this marketing situation, you have to like put things into boxes to make it simple for people to understand. But if you really want to talk about the craft, the art, like, 
I don't really know what jazz is, to be honest. Um, now, in terms of the audience, I think that, yes, like, listen, some of my, I, I, I don't want people to, like, misconstrue and to think that I'm anti-white because I'm not anti-white. Some of my best friends are white, you know. But anybody with a brain would know that whenever you go to a lot of different concerts or events, there's hardly black people there. Is it systemic? Is there a thing? Is there like, is it that black people feel like, is this a safe space for black people? And that's oh. the thing. Like, there's a, I think there's a lot of components to it. I think that, I guess, white supremacy is one of those things where like, it's, it, it's, it's insidious in many ways. And we might not think of, oh, it's just, you know, it's just not their thing. It's just not something that black people are into. But why is that? Like, why is that? It, 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 I think it's, it's 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 something rooted like in our in this culture that like and it's not just in England this is in America as well I know I mean I I find it I find it bewildering but I still do want to know the answer to the question I think I would argue and say respectfully I would say that yes we embrace people who are there I mean we we do that anyway you know that's 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 a given but I think we have to also talk about Okay, I'm going to say this. When I went to African Liberation Day, I felt like I was home, man. I felt like it was a safe space. Like, I felt, wow, I haven't felt that in a long time. Okay, you go to some event, some event called Pi, you know? I don't feel that safe. I feel, I feel like I'm the only black person here. I don't really feel comfortable. I feel like there's this thing, man, like, as a black person, when you're in a space and you're the only black person there, that gets old, man. I can't lie. It gets very tiring. And it gets very, because it's like, you know, I'm black American, so my culture is like this, and then this, and then it's like, just this whole thing where, it, it, I mean, we are forced to, we, we're forced to be in that situation very often it's and it is hard sometimes and all the times black people are like man you know we want to go someplace where it's like i know i'm gonna be comfortable i'm okay listen i'm not saying me personally i'm speaking as black people i'm not speaking as gary washington speaking as black people and saying like yeah like so i think that but so that's one aspect of it black people want to feel safe they don't want to feel like people are judging them or looking at their locks and saying, oh, man, are you a gangster? Like, I was at an event the other day. I'm not going to say no names, but I was talking to this. It was an all-white thing. I was talking to this guy, and I was like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Back in the G. Oh, what does back in the G mean? And I'm like, oh, you know, back in the day, you know? He said, oh, my son, he, 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 he talks black. And I'm like, okay, he talks black. What does that mean, you know? Yeah, he, he's into all the gangster stuff and blah. And very, very quickly, I realized, like, the thing is, man, when you're at these, when it's a lot of, not all, I'm not saying some white people. Just, I'm just shaking my head and just going, here we go. Like, the thing is, like, the thing with black people, we have our own culture, right? We have our own thing. We have our own, and some white people are a part of that culture. Some white people grew up alongside with black people, so they get it. But not all white people get it. Some white people, even though they may have not have grown up around black people, 
they just cool. They're like, yeah, man, I can appreciate other cultures and I can accept other cultures as an equal culture. But there's this subtle thing with white people when it's an all white event where they make it very obvious that they're above you. Black culture is gangster. Black culture, is, you know what I'm saying? It's like you, you very quickly put me in a box and say, I'm black. So my accent, the way I'm talking, he said, he said, yeah, my son talks black. I said, what does that mean? Like, what does talking black mean? And then he brought up the gay. I said, I'm black American. Black British is a different thing. Black, you know what I'm saying? There's so many different versions of black. But then he said gangster. And I was like, so that's what I'm saying. Like, the thing is, right? Yeah, you can say, oh, just embrace the crowd that's there. But at the same time, if you really go into it, you if you're bringing black people in these spaces where they feel like they're treated like they're less than, they're not going to come. So let's just let's ask this question. Why do we not put the energy to attract more black people? Why do we not try to make a space to where we make black people feel safe? Because it's like we're doing it in like the jobs. Oh, we have to have at least three black people to make us look like we're like equitable or whatever, you know what I'm saying? But I think like not even just black people, I think we need to, I, I think we need to embrace other cultures as equals. You know what I mean? I think that's the problem. Like white supremacy that is implanted. It's not something that people are conscious of. It's an unconscious thing that people don't even notice. Well it is. I mean the, the whole the whole sentence I believe is a nonsense. As equals, excuse me. Who ever said that we weren't? Who ever decided that we weren't equal? Why do we even adopt that phrase? Why do we even treat us as equals? What? What? Are no, we are equal. Where did that came? Where did that come from? That came from the same place as B A M E came from. It came from the same place as ethnic minority came from. It came from the same place where over and over and over and over again they call for reports into things that we already know the answers to and the results from. It's called, you know, inherent structural racism. And that's what, you know, we talk about George Floyd, but that's what all of these commitments and all of these promises, that that's what they're supposed to be doing. Now, you know, we're three years on. We've just passed the third anniversary and you've got this marvellous, you, you've put, you know, you are telling us our story, which is our story. So we've got something that is actually, you know, making a statement if you like but where do you think we are as a people from three years ago from when you and I first met because you know what you told me Gary you said the difference between America and the United Kingdom is you can get shot in America that's what you told me the difference was to be in black in the UK as to be in black in America so you're asking? I'm asking you, where are we three years on? I think, to be honest, right? I think that I feel everything is it's more of a show. So people are more conscious of like showing that they're more. We're, we're, it's like a surface level, like it's like a band-aid but we were putting band-aids over it. But I think, to be honest, this is my personal opinion, 
I've adapted more of a Pan-Africanist perspective from then to now. And I feel that as Black people, I would like us to like form our own like situations and support each other to the fullest and build ourselves up. I think that because you can't have true unity unless, because the unity we have now, it sort of puts us, it's like, it doesn't, it's not true unity when we're being offered a, a seat at their table. I think that true unity is having our own table and then your and then their table is here and then we then you like okay let's do this it's like oh okay like Absolutely. you know that's true unity so i think for now coming together as black people pan africanists you know like like whether you're from nigeria you're from jamaica you're from south america we all come together we put our resources together we go in together you know we we love each other because I think that being enslaved has created a lot of self-hate, you know? And I've been learning stuff about myself that, wow, like, I'm carrying this, I'm carrying it. You don't even really realize what you're carrying because self-hate manifests itself in many different ways. The way we treat our partners, the way we treat ourselves. First of all, the way we treat ourselves, then the way we treat our partners, the way we treat our kids. And I'm realizing there's some stuff that I want to unlearn that I'm consciously working on therapy and all of this stuff because we have generational traumas. Absolutely. I mean? Gary, honestly, you and I, we th this is a conversation that we could stop and start again. One of the things that I do is I do the subject, one of my pet subjects is autism, ADHD, um, and obviously uh, they're talking about trauma. After George Floyd, I went through a year of floundering in inverted commas, emotionally, mentally, physically. Um, I was in absolute turmoil and didn't know why. So I was covering all of these stories. I was doing panel shows. I was doing interviews. I was, you know, just doing news reports, talking about what had happened. Uh, and didn't understand what this thing was that was growing inside of me. And then it was explained to me at the end of the year by a wonderful lady called Oliton Day Spence, um, who is an art psychotherapist. And she told, told me, you know, she placed it all in context in terms of intergenerational um, uh, trauma and black trauma and all this stuff about learned behavior um but it was the black trauma and understanding what it was that every single time i watched one of these films or heard one of these reports or listened to this song or whatever the end result is the same where black people were hurting were crying and it was causing incredible trauma uh, inside of me so you're absolutely, you are 100% on the button there in terms of how important it is for us as a people. Somehow. But, but, but also, you know, and, and I'm not going to say in our defence, I think, you know, we talked about access and opportunity and having somebody on your side. And I think the problem is, Gary, is when you have so little, there is this fear, isn't there, that, 
that that you know we feel we've got to hang on to what little bit that we've got or we couldn't possibly bring somebody else in for fear of losing what we might get it's pathetic and we need to do more of this coming together and sharing together but it's kind of okay let's use gary's maybe we use gary's gary's event as stage one maybe that's stage one i think like it started with me where I, I would say, oh, I have like mommy issues or I have daddy issues. Or I'm like, oh, I have these issues from my parents. And then all of a sudden, like, wait a minute, I think it's deeper than just my parents. What did my parents' parents go through? And then you read all this history. It's like, yo, oh, man, like I am all of these people who came before me. Like they are in me. So like I'm carrying all of that. So, yeah, it may be, I think, like. And not to say that we are only hurt pain, you know, like we got glory. Of course, of course, of course. But um, to say that, <clears throat> like, it's like, okay, like the, what is it? Crabs in the barrel mentality. Like, you know, that whole thing where like, I got what I got and I don't want no, you know what I'm saying? Like, but at the same time, I do also believe that maybe that's a part of it, but I do think that like, I don't know. Can we imagine like, like, Imagine we just chilling and someone comes and takes your kid or takes you, takes me, puts me in chains, puts me on a boat. Half of the people around, well, a a large percentage of people that are on that boat are going to die, right? I'm in this new land. I'm never going back to Africa, ever, ever. My kids, I'm having kids. I'm separated from people that I love. And then you have to work. You ain't getting paid. You are property. You are not a human being. You are you are commodity. You're not human. You're sped on. Yeah, maybe you may have some owners of enslaved people treating you well like you're a part of the family, but you're it's like a dog. Dogs are treated nice. You know what I'm saying? And in some situations... You're not treated so nice. Some people run away. Some people cry. Some people may kill themselves. Some people may kill their owners. Owners, you know. But it's into generations, like generations and generations and generations, and then you're freed. And then after you're freed, it's like, wait a minute, you're you're not human still. You have to be separate from us. You're not this. You're not that. And then you're gunned down by the police. And then you're this and you're that. So all of that. And then you look at other groups of people, other ethnicities, and how they can just come in situations and work together and just be prosperous and blah, blah, blah. Not to say that we haven't been prosperous, because to be honest, we have done a lot of beautiful things. But I think that, as you said, in our defense, man, like, I know my ancestors, like, I know there's a lot of healing I want to do. You know, there's a lot of healing. There's a lot of things I don't want to bring to the next generation. I know that. I'm just being honest with myself and saying that I know that for that. And I think that that is the problem. And I think that another problem is white supremacy. It's like, okay, say if we have been out of enslavement and then you come out of enslavement. and But then say if white supremacy wasn't really a thing and it was like, okay, well, actually, that's like try to work with like, Let's try to work with blacks and let's try to like, you know what I'm saying? Like, 
But no, that wasn't the case. It's like, no, you may be free, but you ain't really free. And that's the thing. It, it, oh, man, it really breaks my heart. Like, I don't know. I know a story people call it black is a celebration. That production is a celebration. But when I'm talking about the idea of Pan-Africanism from how I understand it and the healing, and I don't know, when I went to that African liberation, it really lit something in me. That was my first time attending in Manchester. I know they do it every year. They haven't done it during COVID. But it really lit something in me and made me realize like what we really need to do. And it starts with like, you know, everyone always says it starts with ourselves, you know, like I know for me, I'm trying to do my little bits. I, am I doing the right thing? I don't know. I hope I, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm making a difference in myself. But I, I got friends I talk to and just trying to get better, you know, had relationships with women, me personally, and made mistakes feeling like, wow, I feel like maybe this is a pattern. So it's like, okay, let's analyze this and try to like go back and okay, maybe I need to like deal with this. Or maybe, you know what I mean? Like, and it's like that, like, you know, it's some little things, man, like, but they're not little things. And that's, that's me personally. I think dumb little things, like how we relate to each other. I don't know. I know I'm talking a lot, but I'm just very passionate about this because I know in my life, I've seen how I made mistakes and I've seen how the mistakes that I've made has affected other people. And I've seen people make mistakes in regards to me, you know? But it's all love at the end of the day. It's like, look, we all learning out here. But I want to be better. I want to make it better for the next generation. So don't we all? Well, absolutely. And I think that uh, a story of a people called Black is starting to make things better for the next generation because at least it gives us, you know, let's 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 use that as another marker. Let's use that as something for us to think upon and feast upon and use for food for thought. Obviously, Gary, it can't have escaped your notice that it's the uh, 75th anniversary of Windrush this month on the 22nd. Any thoughts on uh, the significance of that as a as an anniversary, as a as an an adopted Mancunian? Yeah, I feel like um, you know, it's crazy. Like, I can speak more on Jamaican culture than I can speak on like any other culture in the UK in terms of like from the Caribbean so I will speak on that and I'll say that it's just such a small island isn't it like it's like you know small island but it's really kind of crazy how like how much influence Jamaican culture has like in the UK like it's really crazy that's a very that's a very potent culture that's very potent culture like you know and it's crazy like so many people that i know like i don't know and it's like what after the second world war right and it seems like 1948 windrush yeah. so, so i feel like it feels like i mean to be honest that's not that long that's not even really a hundred years, right? But it feels like coming to the UK, like cats just been here, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because cats are so embedded in the culture. It's like deeply rooted, like the food. People, people, I mean, people were, there were black people in the UK before them, but they use 
uh, Windrush as a marker because it was significant migration to the UK. So the 500 people on that ship. Um, but people were here before then. My folks came here in 1955. Um, you know, and it's interesting for many years, I used to say, Windrush is not, you know, my mum and dad didn't come on Windrush, so we're not Windrush. But actually, it's not. It's it's just for the, the marker in time. And it means significant immigration to the UK thereafter. Yes. But of course, they weren't only immigrating. You know, they weren't uh, just doing that. They weren't just as immigrants. They were invited. And this is where this is where the problem starts, if you like. They were invited to come here as British citizens. So right. my mum and dad... Um, came here, and my mum brought us up English. I wasn't brought up Black Gary. I was brought up English, and that's a different story for another time. Um, you know, I only started to understand the significance of that when I got into broadcasting. You know, my life had been a white life. I'd lived in a white uh, neighbourhood. I'd gone to a white school. I worked in a white industry. My first husband was white, my second husband is white as well, for that matter. But there you go. Um, you know, it's not surprising. That is how I was brought up. That is, they were my, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's beautiful, you know. I think it's, yeah, it's just, I'm just astonished. You know, like, I know in the U.S., Black American culture, you know, from the inception of the concept of when the land was stolen, you know, we've been there. So it's like, obviously, we're like rooted. So American culture is like kind of black culture, you know, like that's what's exported is black culture. But in England, it's interesting. Like, I sort of see a lot of parallels between like how Caribbean culture is so entrenched here to where even though I guess the markers you say it starts when the significant um, population started coming here. It seemed like it's 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 paralleled. It, it, I'm just kind of astonished that like in seventy five or seventy odd years that a culture can like just dominate, not just be implanted, but dominate. You know what I mean? That's like very, and that just goes to show you how rich our culture is. And you know what? They export that culture. Like, that culture is exported and people making money from that, you know? I mean, because, you know, it's like as a, these countries, it's like a soft power, isn't it, to have, like, culture, you know? And it's like, it's just crazy. Um, it's, it's beautiful. Gary, you know, it's it's like you, you, you answer that question and the comments that you've just made there would make a documentary in its own right. Because talking about funding and how money gets in and how money gets used and how what we all have to do to survive, you know, you have survived. You are a survivor. Well, it's it's a it's it's an ongoing process. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm talking about putting a slice of bread on your table. Survival, yeah. you know. There's an awful lot of people working in the arts for zero for a long time. So to somehow turn that around, um, yeah, I think it's absolutely um, that's that's not you. You you've come at it straight away. You know, you've almost come at it running. You've identified what needs what needed to be done, 
and how it needed to be done. And you've done it. You know, you've done it. You've got an orchestra. You've got a gig on the 17th of June. Sound a bit more excited, Mr. Washington, please. 10 days, 10 days, well, 10, 12, 11, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, Gary, thank you so, so much. That was wonderful. So there you go. A story of a people called Black helping to unravel some of the complexities around race and identity, reimagined courtesy of Gary Washington aka the urban cellist sharing his history a collective history of people from the african diaspora and beyond but what say you i want to know what you think so it's now for the important bit which is you thank you for taking the time to listen and it's so obvious we have got so much to explore and we're doing it with a swing with meaningful content. Thank you, Oscar Brown Jr. And you cannot afford to miss a beat. So press that button and subscribe to this monthly podcast and join me as I meet the undisputed music legends and share their secrets to success and longevity just with you. And if this hits you in groove, I also want you to uh, send up your love and then press that button again and share the news with your peeps because this is living history in the making, folks. Until the next time.